Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, and Swan Bitcoin is putting on Pacific Bitcoin. This will be the biggest Bitcoin-only conference ever. This is going to be on November 10th and 11th, 2022 in LA, California. Hang out with thousands of Bitcoiners from around the globe. I'm looking forward to it, and we're going to be able to meet and catch up with a whole bunch of Bitcoin people, uh, whether they're on the main stage or whether we are hanging out at the conference and at events throughout the week. This conference is going to be optimized for fun with sports, games, music, photo opportunities, and high fives. And there's a lot more. The conference is the main event of LA Bitcoin Week. It'll be full of educational opportunities, meetups, co-working, and parties throughout the week. So come join us at the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference in LA, November 10th and 11th, 2022. The website is PAC Bitcoin. Bitcoin.com. Voltage is paving the way as the leading enterprise-grade Lightning solution for anyone building on Layer 2. Lightning is the future for Bitcoin payments, whether that's podcasting 2.0 or whether you are doing commerce online or even in person. Voltage can help with integrating Lightning and payment infrastructure into your solution quickly and hassle-free. So don't waste time with maintenance and integration. Deploy and iterate faster. Whether you want to route payments, build your small business, or scale an enterprise company, Voltage is the solution. Go and get started over at voltage.cloud. My favorite Bitcoin hardware signing device is the cold card available from coinkite.com. So with your Bitcoin hardware signing device, you can plug it into your computer. It will give you 12 or 24 words that you write down and that's your backup. Now you can use that easily with wallets like Sparrow, or Spectre Desktop, or Electrum, and you can use it in all kinds of different configurations, whether that is single signature, you can use it with a passphrase, you can use it as part of a multi-signature setup. There's all different options that you should be thinking about and considering as part of your tailored security setup. So if you're interested to get your cold card, go and get yours at coinkite.com. So today, Dan McArdle joins me and we chat about Bitcoin narratives, which ones are dead, especially as we've gone through this price drop recently. We talk about various statistics and things that people often talk about in the Bitcoin world, such as the four-year hodler statistic. And we also discuss some of his insights from prior cycles and drawdowns, as well as FUD over the years, how it has changed over time, and some of the statistics as well around CAGA compound annual growth rate and how that's changed. So on to the show with Dan. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So Dan, we are going to chat about a few things today, but I think the main theme is this idea of Bitcoin narratives and are they dead or are they just delayed or postponed perhaps? Uh, but for anyone who doesn't know you, can you just give us just a brief overview of your history in, in the Bitcoin world? Sure. So I guess I first stumbled across Bitcoin from a slashed up post when it crossed a dollar in 2011. Uh, ignored it like everyone does on their first uh, discovery <laughs> Uh, rediscovered it a few months later when the price was going nuts in that 2011 bubble. And uh, that's when I kind of did my homework and uh, really discovered that this was something I needed to pay attention to and something truly unique. Uh, anyway, so fast forward to 2014. I was co-founder of Digital Currency Council, which at the time uh, was a professional network educating people on Bitcoin. Yeah, there was really nothing else. I think in all our education materials, I had like one slide, these things called altcoins, uh, but it was really, it's really all Bitcoin. Then, you know, that that business was basically a victim of the uh, 2015 bear market. 2017 rolled around, 
I created on-chain effects to kind of get more fundamentals data out there in the space because you know that, that was an area of all these ICOs with these crazy supply schedules that nobody understood and you know people are kind of getting taken advantage of by all that. So it's trying to get better information out there so people could make better decisions and ended up uh, rolling that into Masari. So I'm a co-founder of Masari and yeah, that's what I've been uh, doing for the last few years. Excellent. And so what we're seeing now is what we've seen many times before in Bitcoin's history. So perhaps it would be great to hear a little bit of context from yourself on big Bitcoin drawdowns historically. Yeah. What did they look like before and what, what does this one look like now and how does this one compare historically? Yeah, so I, I mean, my, I guess my first Bitcoin bear market was the 2011 bear uh, when we went from you know high of 32 in June 2011 to less than $2, $1.91, I think, in November 2011. So, you know, less than six months, we were down 94%. So that was pretty brutal. Uh, you know, it, that, it's funny, I, like I still say that was the worst bear market. Maybe it's because everybody's first bear market is always the one that they think is the worst because like they've never seen it bounce back before, right? So so it, uh, it takes, uh, I think for most people, it takes seeing it go, you know, just get so clobbered and then coming back with a vengeance you know, a year or two later, you know, whatever the case may be, it takes that for most people to really have the conviction. Anyway, at the same time, there are unique factors to every bear market. But in that one, you know, there are only like, you know, 30 or 40,000, you know, anons on Bitcoin talk that really cared about Bitcoin at the time. Like, you know, there was no mind share in, you know, in the mainstream, you know, in, you know, kind of anyone, you know, who mattered in kind of you know, traditional finance or uh, VC or anything like that. So, it was more conceivable that the world could just kind of forget about Bitcoin for a while. Like, you know, we all kind of knew that this technology you know, was here to stay. This idea was too powerful, but it seemed like it could be on the back burner for a long time after that, uh, after that drawdown. But that's not what happened. Then, you know, uh, recovered in 2012, you know, 2013, Bitcoin basically had two bubbles over the course of the whole thing. It did 100x and started the year at 11 and, uh, and you know, <laughs> it hit. At 1163, I think, on Bitstamp in December that year, in November. So that was that was nuts. And you know, then uh, you know that was a couple months later. I mean, there were warning signs for Mount Gox for months prior to that, but a couple months after that peak uh, is when Mount Gox declared bankruptcy. Uh, and then you know that that was just kind of like a bomb in the space that that just like destroyed sentiment for uh, for a couple years, really. So you know, if you were to draw an analogy, I'm starting to feel like you know, with all these, you know, lenders blowing up and, you know, uh, you know, centralized institutions on top of Bitcoin, you know, there are some similarities there where these, you know, centralized entities that use the Bitcoin network that, you know, have <laughs> taken control of people's Bitcoin and, uh, you know, not, not treated it too well. <laughs> There's uh, some analogies there with, uh, with the Mt. Gox blow up, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's anywhere near as severe, at least yet. You know, because Mt. Gox, when it blew up, was 80% of the ecosystem, was 80% of trade volume, you know, it was kind of the hub of, of the whole space, you know, at least as far as like the, the centralized activity goes. So, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, that was probably, a lot of people would say that was the worst one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so it's interesting because comparing Mt. Gox's fall in late 2013, early 2014, as you were saying, that was probably that was the only game in town. It was yeah. maybe eighty percent of the game in town. There were some small, smaller exchanges. Bitstamp was around then. There was that Russian one, BTCE, and, and Kraken yeah. was around as well. But again, they, they they were a lot smaller in those days. Uh, at least that's my recollection. I'm a 2013er, so Definitely. I've lived through some, but not as many as you. 
And so then comparing to today, if let's say a large exchange, something similar were to happen to Coinbase or Binance, right? Even then, it would still not be as much as what happened with Mt. Gox back in late 2013, early 2014. Yeah, in terms of trade volume, that's true. So I, I would say probably, though, if Coinbase blew up, which, you know, I do not think is in the cards, you know, never say never, but, you know, that's highly unlikely in my opinion. That would, from a sentiment perspective, that would probably be as brutal as Mt. Gox. Um, so it'd probably have to be an event like that to be kind of of similar magnitude, at least in terms of what the sentiment toward the space would become overall, I think, e- even if trade volume right. is, uh, is more distributed nowadays. For sure. Yeah. And so in terms of the numbers, right, and I know you've shared some statistics on Twitter as well, and people were talking about it, but in terms of 80% drawdowns, it seems to me like right. there have been at least three in Bitcoin's history, right? The 2011, end of 2013 sort of drop. Yep. And also the 2017-2018 cycle, that that was an 80% drop there as well because we went from like 20,000 down to, I think, at the absolute bottom, December 2018, it was like 3,500 or something like that. So we went under 4,000, which is eighty, which would be the 80% drop mark. Now, there have been three 80% drops in Bitcoin's history. You've lived through three of them. I've lived through two of them. Um, but not just that, there have been multiple 50% drawdowns. And even this recent one, if we're going peak to trough, we're saying roughly 69,000 last year. And the absolute bottom of this recent go around, it seems, was around 17,300-ish, which is about a 75% drop. So it's not even an 80% drop. Yeah, exactly. And there's a huge... So actually, those 80% were were higher. So And there was actually another one. I kind of counted as four because the spring 2013, we went from 266 to 50, which I think is, you know, 81% drop. And then, you know, so it's like... People count 2013 as one bull market, and that's fine. But like, technically, we have had uh, four 80% or more drops. And the the other one, you know, we've had, I think, 81%, 84%, and 87%. And like, you know, the difference between 80% and 87% doesn't sound like much, but it's you know, it's almost another 50% drop once you've already been down 80%. Um, so, so that, you know, that gets brutal. Um, but yeah, that that's uh, that's not where we're at right now. So it's interesting. Like the, the the thesis on the way up was that you know now we really do have institutional involvement, uh, and so you know maybe you know it's, instead of getting you know excessive FOMO like retail does, like maybe they will you know rebalance their portfolios on the way up and you know kind of attenuate you know, the parabolic spikes that we've traditionally seen, and you know we didn't see that this cycle, so maybe uh, maybe that you know that wasn't effective the institutional buyers. So we'll, we'll see if the same is is true on the downside. Like maybe. You know, maybe there are bigger pools of capital now who have a uh, fundamental view on on Bitcoin and uh, you know are, are are willing to to jump in and not not be so uh, you know so not feel the despair like uh, like retail does at the bottom of uh, of bear markets. So, so we'll see. Um, but but we did have you know in 2020 you know, you know Paul Tudor Jones, even Stan Druckenmiller, and you know, a bunch of others that came out with with what I what I would say is the right thesis on Bitcoin that it would say. Uh, you know, hedge against excessive, you know, fiat money printing and, and and the kind of necessary long-term fiat dynamics, right? Like we are in this period right now where the Fed is tightening, where, you know, one of these brief, I think, periods where uh, where fiat isn't expanding. And, uh, but, it, you know, if you look over these longer timeframes, kind of the math just says that, you know, the Fed and, and other central banks 
kind of do have to inflate the debt away. They're, they're going to have to print more money. You know, the money supply is going to have to increase. And you know, these things have been historically very bullish for Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe some of these uh, some of these you know uh, higher capital entities that came in in 2020 uh, have that thesis and can put a put a higher floor on the downside. But you know, we'll see. TBD. Yeah, for sure. And as you were saying, I think it is about having that fundamental viewpoint and stepping back and thinking, well, what other ways is the fiat system going to go on? And how else does it carry on other than with more inflation eventually? Now, of course, that may not happen straight away. And of course, that the big question on most people's minds is, if the Fed is going to pivot, when? Is it going to be late this year, early next year? I mean, who knows, right? But I think that's the fundamental question that anybody has to think about when they're thinking about Bitcoin. Now, I think the other point I really wanted to ask you about as well is this common narrative. And it's been a, let's say it's been a talking point, is this idea that every time Bitcoin has gone through a cycle, it has never gone below the prior all-time high, right? That That's a common, let's say, yeah. talking point or narrative. Now, what's your reaction to that? Well, uh, so again, it's how you count the cycles. Um, so that that spring 2013 run uh, where Bitcoin went from you know 11 to 266 and then had a negative 80 percent you know drawdown and then kind of you know flatlined at at negative 70 percent for you know months. That certainly felt like a full cycle, right? So and we kind of counted it as such at the time. So if you count that, then that high was 266, uh, and then you know. Fast forward to the next cycle, which is, you know, the end of 2013, where we hit 1163. And then, you know, a little more than a year after that, we hit a low of, you know, 153 or so on uh, Bitstamp, I think. So that was, you know, which was below that spring 2013, 266 from that cycle. So, you know, these are, I don't know if there's a ton of rhyme or reason to exactly what the peaks are and exactly what the troughs are. And so, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it is, you know, people like have, yeah, <laughs> have had that narrative about about uh, cycle all time highs never being breached, but I I don't think that's true if you're if you're counting cycles like I am, and uh, you know that's there's no reason that that should be a hard and fast rule anyway. Uh, I think what's important to focus on is just is is just the long term. You know, you're looking at you know five year returns fundamentals. You know. yeah, yeah, exactly. Of course. And so yeah, as you rightly said, and so for me, living through that 2013 double cycle, if you will. The narrative at the time was the whole Cyprus bailout. So that was the big yeah. narrative. Oh, Cyprus are doing this bail-ins and watch out. And that's, you know, in the narrative now, of course, narrative and reality are different. The narrative was sort of that all oh, the Cypriot people are buying Bitcoin. But in reality, it may have been more like a, a kind of that was part of the narrative. And there were people outside of Cyprus who were just buying Bitcoin because of that narrative, potentially. And then... Who knows? I mean, every historically people look back and say, oh, that was the reason for this, right? So the, the other yeah. big reason people are saying is, oh, Mt. Gox is going under and they had this Willybot and Willybot was pumping <laughs> right. the price by, you know, that was that was the narrative, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a funny one because, uh, I mean, there were so many people at the time who were saying, okay, you know, after that, after that price peak and then crash, you know, that 1163 price peak, people were saying, oh, you know, Bitcoin could never have gotten there without Willybot and will never break a thousand again because, you know, Willybot is dead now. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, clearly proven false. Yeah, p- people are always looking for uh, looking for easy reasons and, you know, markets are, are complicated. So, uh, you know, the easy reasons are usually wrong. Of course, yeah. Now, the other point that's been also a common talking point, and maybe this narrative is now gone, uh, is this idea that, a person who bought Bitcoin and held for four years or longer was never in a loss. 
And historically, up until recently, it used to be true that if you held for four years, you were the minimum you were up was I think three or even five X on what you would put in. That was historically true. Now, of course, if we cherry pick the exact dates, let's say I bought the close to the top of December 2017 at 19,600. <laughs> right. And recently, the you know, if you held for four and a half years, you at one point would have been underwater because the prices call it 17 and a half thousand. So that narrative is now broken because you could have been holding for four years uh, and been down. So I'm curious your thoughts on that and the breaking of that narrative. Does that mean anything or again, not really? Yeah, I, I mean, so I've always taken a, I, I advise taking at least a five-year view. I've personally always taken a 10-year view. Um, you know, I remember when, you know, when I first kind of, you know, got involved with Bitcoin, I was like, all right, the, you know, let's see what happens with this over 10 years. Like it's going to take time and it's going to be volatile. Like you can't bootstrap something that could be a new global reserve currency for the digital era, like, you know, without a ton of volatility, you're not going from, you know, zero to tens of trillions <laughs> without without some like pretty crazy price action. And yeah, you know, like, you know, different sorts of macro environments last for many years. So, you know, Bitcoin is now a macro asset, uh, kind of, I, th I think 2020 really kind of transitioned to, I, I would call it a, a global macro asset. Uh, so, you know, that, that means we are going to be exposed to these macro cycles um, and they can last years. Uh, I would encourage people to really do their homework, really understand Bitcoin's potential, have a price target in mind based on fundamentals and uh, have a long term view, uh, you know, ideally 10 years or, or more, uh, definitely at least five. And uh, yeah, that, you know, that that's kind of the more reasonable benchmark in my in my opinion, given uh given the volatility that's inherent in a process like this. Of course, and I totally agree with you there. I think perhaps another criticism that could be leveled, and again, it depends on who people were listening to, but this idea of if people were listening to that talking point of the four-year, you know, so on, then people could say, well, aren't you Bitcoin guys? You're just changing the goalpost now. You're saying, oh, it's now five years, or now it's 10 years, right? But of course, it depends who you were listening to, right? And what was your fundamental thesis about this thing and what you view the long term of Bitcoin being? When, How long do you think it's going to take to become, say, firstly, let's say kind of in the same realm as, as gold, let's say 11 or 12 trillion as, an, as a total market, and then eventually someday global money, maybe that's M3, right? About 100 trillion, maybe 150. 10, 120 trillion worth, but maybe that's that's decades away. We don't know. Um, right. So yeah, I think something, and it's probably. I think it's also f fair to point out that while a four-year hodler could be down if you cherry pick the dates, if you were a four-year stacker, like if you were regularly stacking, yes, I don't believe you were ever underwater, or not as in you were underwater once you had been stacking for four years. Yeah. Right. I've been meaning to do that analysis, but I haven't. Um, yeah. So I have. On casebitcoin.com, I have some of the uh, some of these like long term ROI charts, and yeah, the four year ROI right now is still plus two hundred percent, whereas you know gold and the S and P five hundred are are both you know forty something percent. Uh, so still you know substantial outperformance if you just look you know this date four years ago. So yeah, that's you know obviously not cherry picking the exact high. But yeah, you know, even so, it's conceivable that that those like you know three and four year numbers will will go negative at some point. You know, if we you know, go into some you know severe recession and liquidity crunch, and the Fed's still hiking and you know rolling off the balance sheet and all that, like it's conceivable. But I think that's got to be in your in your like you know range of possible outcomes. And if you're 
you know, if you hold the hold the asset for for the right reasons, and you uh, you know you have a have a fundamental view and a, and a target in mind, uh, you know that you're really understanding the asset. I think is what what gives you the the conviction to to hold through these periods. And you know, if you don't understand what you own and you are getting scared, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't own it until you understand it better. Yeah, for sure. And I really like that website, casebitcoin.com. So perhaps you can just tell listeners a little bit about it and what they can expect to see on casebitcoin.com. Yeah, so it's a site I put together in 2020 really to kind of lay out the case for Bitcoin as uh, as more and more kind of traditional finance people and even retail uh, was just getting you know interested in Bitcoin. Um, so I try to collect, you know, there's a, it's a mix of uh, quantitative and, and qualitative stuff. So uh, I have a library of, you know, some of the key kind of, you know, articles, blog posts, uh, Twitter threads, et cetera, on, on Bitcoin from over the years um, that really give you a good framework for, for understanding it. Um, yeah, and then a bunch of data, uh, you know, about its uh, performance a, as an asset. So just, you know, basic stuff like ROI and then, you know, some like risk adjusted returns and, uh, you know, sharp and Sortino ratios and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, just a bunch of you know, other kind of health stats on uh on, on the network and the asset. And so, yeah, it's funny. Uh, yeah. I feel like since I created that, like people, people do understand, you know, the case for Bitcoin a lot, a lot better. It's just, you know, there's more information has gotten out there in the last two years. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people that, that did come in, in, in 2020, uh, do kind of understand the fundamentals. So yeah, the site is in, uh, is in dire need of, of, uh, updating, but, uh, yeah, still a lot of good data there, I think. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I think things like the Kaga stats are also interesting for people to see and just compare and say, okay, this is what Bitcoin did over 10 years on a Kaga basis. So Kaga stands for Compound Annual Growth Rate. And as we speak today, it's end of June 2022. And that number is about 120% on a 10-year basis. Now, of course, if we looked at that number on a five-year basis, it would be very different, but it's still interesting to get some perspective. Now, of course, Personally, I obviously I anticipate that to taper down over time. I'm not expecting that to stay 120% every year. <laughs> It'll probably taper down. And if you were, yeah, if you were looking at say the medium term, I've spoken with my friend Hass McCook as well, and he, his suggestion is something more like 60 to 70% is sort of more like a medium term. You could see it achieving that kind of level. Yeah, I mean, there are very few assets in financial history that have you know had a ten-year Kager of, of even sixty percent. And you know, like you said, Bitcoin's is one hundred twenty percent right now. Even the five-year looks like it's fifty-one percent. And you know, look at gold and S and P are, are both single digits. So I, I mean, and that's fifty percent versus you know eight percent is in a five-year Kager is huge because that's compounding every over five years. So yeah, you know, there's there's no arguing with the uh, with the past performance. I, I don't think I agree with you that uh, you know now that we're a bigger asset, it can't grow the, grow as fast forever. But this is back to like what you think the ultimate upside is, right? Like, you know, it seems in my own kind of mental model, it's like okay, well, you know, I mean, an easy way, an easy comp is gold at you know something like eleven trillion uh, today, and you know that's you know more than a twenty x away and uh yeah you can make arguments that uh the bitcoin ultimately sucks in uh you know more store value demand you know outside of what is in gold and uh specifically from bonds as uh as government bonds which you know i don't know i don't know how many hundreds of trillions are probably in government bonds globally um but yeah as you know <laughs> as we get into an environment where bonds look less and less attractive uh yeah that, that capital is going to seek another home another question that people are being asked is this question of oh is bitcoin no longer 
an inflation hedge? Or was it ever an inflation hedge? How do you consider that question? So that, so that's an interesting one. And I think so I, I think that's a sloppy term, basically. There's debasement and there's inflation and they're two different things. And you know, I've been guilty of uh, kind of using them interchangeably in the past before. I, I think a lot of people have. And that unfortunately has has uh, contributed to this like kind of simple idea that people have that, oh, you know, we have CPI prints, you know, above eight percent now and, and Bitcoin is uh, you know, has been performing poorly over you know over the last few months. Uh, therefore, it's not an inflation hedge. It's like, well, okay, let's be a little more specific. Like, Bitcoin has responded, I think, phenomenally well to monetary debasement. To when the when the Fed, you know, announced QE, printed five trillion dollars in eighteen months, you know, more than doubling the size of of the balance sheet, but you know, just unprecedented money printing. You know, Bitcoin was, uh, you know, to quote Paul Tudor Jones, the fastest horse, and. Debasement and inflation are often related, like debasement leads to inflation. But the thing that I would expect Bitcoin to respond to is the debasement, not specifically uh, the CPI inflation when that comes around. So I would look at like what you know central banks are doing, like what their money supplies are doing. Bitcoin as a the world's first credibly fixed supply monetary asset like that it that is in direct contrast to ce- what central banks do so i would expect it to respond to what central banks do <laughs> fundamentally whereas cpi is you know a downstream effect and central banks can be doing other things when uh, when cpi prints get high just which is exactly what we're seeing now back to the show in a moment so the events at exchanges and lending platforms over the last few weeks have been an important reminder of how important it is to take control of your bitcoin keys so don't hold your bitcoin with somebody else they could block your withdrawals when you need it most or even worse you could have your bitcoin caught up in someone else's insolvency this is where unchained capital can help you unchained offers concierge onboarding a personalized service to guide you through setting up cold storage and withdrawing from an exchange to keys you control they ship you the hardware walk you through the setup and help with withdrawal from an exchange and cover some questions you might have. After your setup, Unchained has ongoing uh, support to help you get comfortable with controlling your own keys. So if you've been putting it off, now's a great time to get into this. So go and check it out, unchained.com slash concierge and get a discount with the code Levera. Those of you interested in Bitcoin mining, Brains.com is the site for you. Brains offer products and services in the Bitcoin mining world. So firstly, they have Brains OS Plus. This is firmware that you can install on your ASIC machine. Go to the website and check whether your model is supported. But if it is, you might be able to improve your efficiency by as much as 25%. So don't leave sats on the table. Go and consider whether it's worthwhile and possible for you to install Brains OS Plus on your ASIC machine. And for those of you managing multiple miners brains also has the brains farm proxy this is a hash rate aggregation proxy that enables data load reduction stable connections easy primary and backup tool configurations and more you can find information about all of this over at brains.com that's brains spelt with two eyes and now back to the show and while we're on this point it's probably worthwhile pointing out the austrian conception of inflation is the money debasement part of it. Whereas nowadays, the Keynesian or statist definition of inflation is more around what CPI is. And they conflate the two. Whereas an Austrian economist is looking at it more like, no, that's money supply inflation is inflation. And that has a downstream impact of purchasing power decrease, which is what the mainstream 
economists will call, oh, that's CPI. That's you know, that's inflation in there. And so in their mind, so it's it's actually useful to tease out that distinction. And in a way, that's actually what you were just getting at as part of your answer on the inflation hedge, because as you rightly pointed out, a lot of the government money printing was done 2020, 2021. And so even though we're getting high CPI prints now, a lot of the money printing was already done. And that was when Bitcoin already went up. So I think that's probably a fair point for people to understand or appreciate. But even there, it's perhaps not a fair expectation to say that Bitcoin must immediately respond to every little thing. Because I think what we see now is this kind of modern news culture where they say, oh, look, stock market is down because of this particular news item or news item A or B. And it's not always like that. There's not always a reason or rhyme to it. Yeah, totally. You, 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 will, you will see, take some time for, uh, you know, for the moves to, to have more clarity. But um, I mean, another thing to point out is uh, if you look at how Bitcoin has performed from the start of the 2020 QE until now, versus you know other assets that also responded well to the to the liquidity bitcoin is uh, is still up something like 3x i believe from when the fed announced uh, that qe in 20 in march 2020 and the kind of poster child for you know for tech growth you know the ark invests you know arkk etf uh, has also responded very well to to the liquidity and went up multiples but has since fully retraced and is now below uh, those you know those levels in March 2020, whereas, whereas Bitcoin is still sitting there at 3x. So you know over the full cycle, that's still massive outperformance, and, and you know Bitcoin is still beating commodities. It's you know very much beating gold and, and the S and P overall. So yeah, I think uh, Paul Tudor Jones was was dead on with the uh, fastest horse comment. For any listeners who are going through their first bear market, do you have any tips for them on how to get through the, the bear market? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess a lot of what I've already said about, you know, just like really doing your your homework and understanding what you own. Um, I, I think you know, this ties in with position sizing. You know, make sure what you can tolerate the volatility that, you know, what you put into Bitcoin isn't isn't money that you're going to you know, need to live <laughs> anytime soon. You know, this is, you know, again, not a, not investment advice and everybody's you know situation is different. So I, I would really think through your own situation and your own risk tolerance and your own volatility tolerance, I guess I, sh- I should say. And uh, and yeah, understand what you own. And uh, yeah, that, at least in my case, has, has given me the conviction to, to hold through the bears. Yeah, for sure. And in terms of, let's say, Bitcoin FUD, right? So what we see is it seems to come back in cycles. And there are certain ideas and items that just come up every time. And some of these are just items that a new coiner or a pre-coiner might be thinking, oh, but what about X, Y, and Z? And I notice sometimes there is a slightly different flavor in the FUD or over the years, there's a slightly different idea. Uh, But I'm curious if you have any thoughts to share on Bitcoin FUD and how it has sort of changed or evolved a little bit over the years. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it actually, I was thinking about this the other day, it actually has evolved uh, substantially. We have laid to rest <laughs> prior FUD <laughs> that uh, l- thankfully hasn't really reared its head again. So like some early ones uh, were, you still see this a little bit now, but like, quote, you know, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. You know, it's a thing people like to say. It's like, well, this, that's a misunderstanding of like where value comes from. I think, you know, most, you know, Austrian economists would correctly, in my view, refer to the subjective theory of value that value for anything comes from, you know, its use or demand from, you know, certain humans in certain contexts. Like there's no, there's nothing intrinsic about value, 
gold bugs get this wrong, I think. And uh, anyway, I, I think people now understand Bitcoin's value proposition more fundamentally than just like saying, oh, it, you know, because it's digital and you can't touch it, it has no value, which was a thing for years. Kind of another one was uh, people asserted a lot early on that like Satoshi was there's no way, you know, he didn't put a backdoor in this thing and wasn't going to like come back and steal all the Bitcoin or whatever. Like it sounds ridiculous to say now. And, and you know, it was then for anybody who understood, you know, the network and the nature of open source and, and, and so forth. But that was some FUD we had to deal with for a while. <laughs> so like now it's like, it's funny, like the FUD is, it's almost more political. Um, you know, I think one of the most aggressive ones is the ESG stuff, the, you know, assertion that you know bitcoin is some like environmental disaster like you know we we saw a little bit of that years ago but it's really in the last like one to two years has just gotten ridiculous and uh yeah i mean that one it's the one that annoys me the most now uh, it's just like so pervasive and uh and really actually does matter like you know un unfortunately people who maybe haven't made up their mind on bitcoin like you know are you know do hear these things and it does matter to them uh, so I, th I think it is important that, you know, that we all combat these these bad ideas. And just just as like one quick way to point out how silly that is, I think um, Daniel Buckner um, has you know done some like back of the napkin math on uh, Bitcoin's energy use you know relative to some other like common things like uh, clothes dryers, for example. You know, Bitcoin's energy use, clothes dryers use 15 times more energy globally than uh, the entire Bitcoin network. Uh, and then another one he's calculated is uh the emissions due to food waste, so just like you know, wasted food that ends up rotting in trash cans or whatever, is sixty times the uh, the emissions that the Bitcoin network puts out. So, I mean, if anyone is like saying you know Bitcoin is destroying the planet and all that stuff, it like they're either ignorant or politically motivated. I think, and uh, yeah, so that's a little tour of a few of the fud items over the years. Yeah, sure, and I think the other interesting one is dealing with ESG people is some of them will latch onto a certain narrative. So they may see something from a certain Dutch central bankers blog as an example, and then latch onto this and say, ah, see, it, here's a research item showing this. But I think maybe one other item that may be pulling people back to reality now is what's going on in the world with energy today. We're now seeing certain nations who are previously were very oh, look how renewable we are. We don't do fossil fuel. And now all of a sudden with the crisis going on with the Russian war and so on, now they're saying, no, actually, for example, Germany is coming and turning coal back on. Or uh, another statistic I could share is that I understand from what I'm seeing on Twitter, at least in Australia, there's more people who are not so hot on the whole net zero agenda because they are seeing an energy crisis and they are starting to think a little bit more rationally about energy. And hopefully that is something that we can convey to people as well because here's the other thing we're both bullish on bitcoin obviously and many listeners are too and so we believe the energy usage is going to go up so while bitcoin right now is less than say the the dryers or the food waste we don't know what that could be in 10 20 30 years time it might well be more yeah so, so there are two sides to this so yes the the usage will probably go up but i don't think it 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 shouldn't go up linearly with price due to the havings so, you know, if you look on multi-decade timescales and, you know, this does get fuzzy, like way, way out when, uh, you know, when transaction fees um, become you know, much, much bigger relative to block reward. Uh, but, you know, for the foreseeable several decades, Bitcoin should scale sublinearly with price. So uh, in terms of uh, energy usage, and, and it's funny because like everyone looks at energy, but what really matters is emissions. Uh, like that's, that's what we care about. 
uh, you know, in, in terms of environmental impact. And, you know, Bitcoin has is unique because the energy Bitcoin consumes can be consumed anywhere. It's location independent. It doesn't need to be next to big population centers. You know, the energy is uh, it, you know, Bitcoin miners migrate to stranded energy resources, which tend to be renewable, a lot of hydro because uh, it's cheaper because, you know, those producers uh, don't have another another ready market to, to buy that energy. Um, and then you have things like uh, nat gas flaring, which is, you know, a big part of uh, miners, you know, expanding to, to mine on otherwise flared natural gas, uh, which actually, you know, when you plug a Bitcoin miner into those systems, it actually reduces emissions. And there's enough flared natural gas in the United States alone to power the Bitcoin network. So like, you know, when you look at when you look at these two factors of, you know, scaling sublinearly with price and the incentive for, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin to be, you know, mined in ways that are cleaner than the grid overall. I mean, it just, you know, makes the kind of ESG FUD arguments all the more ridiculous. Yeah, for sure. I'm also curious, are there other angles that have not yet been explored or maybe are not as prominent now, but maybe in the future? So maybe one example would be this idea of inequality. So this idea that, oh, look, all these early Bitcoin people, you had it easy, uh, you know, even uh, even if you had to hold through three or four 80% drawdowns, it won't look like that to them in the future in five or 10 years time. Do you think that is another angle, this inequality line of attack? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we'll... Well, I think we'll definitely see that. I mean, I feel like that's started to happen already. And it's funny because I remember a post from, I think, uh, Rasa on Bitcoin Talk from like 2013 with, with that bubble. With you, know, you like had this long post about predicting that uh, this was going to be a line of attack in the future. That, uh, you know, all the early Bitcoiners got lucky and, you know, that's how unfair that is, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I, I mean, I think, you know, the, the counter argument there is just like kind of, acknowledging the nature of markets, right? Like these cycles are massively redistributive in their effects, right? Because like, you know, early Bitcoiners are, you know, when the price goes, you know, 100x are going to want to, you know, cash out some amount. And, uh, you know, people who, who don't understand it are going to are going to sell in, in the in the bear markets. And I don't, so it's just this, this massive, you know, redistribution pressure towards, you know, new holders uh, over time. And we do see the Gini coefficients going down over time. It, you know, it's very noisy data, but I, you know, I think you can draw that that trend. And yeah, then like then the obvious comparison is like, okay, so so there that's Bitcoin in a vacuum. But what are you comparing it to, right? Like you're comparing it to fiat, and you're comparing it to central banks, which you know buy trillions of dollars of of bonds from banks in their in QE, which I would argue QE is likely the kind of the steady state going forward for many central banks for the next 10, 20 years. And sure, you're familiar with the Cantillon effect, where, you know, it really matters who gets the new money in a society first, because they are able to, you know, spend it to buy real, you know, hard assets before that money trickles down to, uh, you know, to less fortunate people in society. So, where the you know the Fed and other central banks like their mechanism for injecting money into society is usually through the banks. You know clearly that's going to cause like financial assets and uh, and and therefore people who hold a lot of financial assets to gain wealth first. And uh, you know everyone else at the bottom is, is is you know stuck bearing the ultimate inflation that results from that without that much or any of the benefits. And you know Bitcoin does not have that dynamic at all. So you really have to look at its structure uh, in comparison to the alternatives too. Of course. And speaking of alternatives, there are probably many investors right now really stopping and thinking a bit more about 
what they are currently allocated to. So right now, it's obviously very common. People who are not really thinking about it or they just take the default, their pension fund is putting them in a whole range of different things or maybe their financial advisor just has them on 60-40 stocks and bonds. And 60-40 stocks and bonds is literally having one of its worst years on record. So it's a, we're in this environment where people have to really stop and think, what am I fundamentally choosing to hold? So if you had to think which markets are most likely to be gobbled up by Bitcoin or let's say holders of this other asset may defect over to Bitcoin, what would you say are the most likely? Well, I, I mean, I just look at government bonds as a huge pot of money that, that can end up you know, some percentage of it and end up in, in, in Bitcoin ultimately. Like, like Bitcoin just stands in such sharp contrast to, you know, the dynamics in the bond market. And, and I think what are long-term dynamics in the bond market? Like if you look at, uh, at Japan, right? Like, you know, their debt to GDP is well over 200%, I believe. So they're in this position where they can't raise rates. Otherwise, it basically, you know, causes the government to default because, um, you know, interest expense uh, just becomes like way too high, eats up all the tax revenue. Uh, so the so right now the central bank of Japan is I think they pegged the ten year bond at you know quarter percent, so twenty five basis points. And how do they peg it? Well, they they print more yen to buy bonds. Like whenever bondholders you know sell too much to causing that yield to go higher, the the central bank has to step in and, and buy those bonds with freshly printed yen. It seems like you know Japan is the farthest along in this dynamic, but. You know, if you just look at like the debt to GDP numbers of other nations, you know, U.S. being the most obvious, it's like we're we're a few years behind them, and uh, you know, those dynamics seem like they ha- it has to happen here as well. So, why would you own bonds when they're basically going to get paid back in massively devalued currency? So, you will, you know, a bondholder, you know, will get their nominal rate of return, but that purchasing power is going to be, you know, vastly devalued. So, you know, it. it it's like you know, where do you put your money? Like so, you know, th- these holders, if they're if they have the flexibility to move their capital somewhere else, I, I would think they're they'd be looking uh, more deeply, especially at hard assets and especially liquid hard assets. And uh, you know, that's Bitcoin. And adding to what you were saying, one other idea I've he- heard from I think a few macro guys. Basically, there there's this idea of the Japanese widowmaker trade. And so basically the idea was the trade was to short the yen, but it was known as the Widowmaker because for such a long time, people who were trying it failed. But it seems like now the people who are trying the Widowmaker trade are actually profiting from that. And so it may be also now that that's actually starting to occur, we're going to see more of a defection from people who are holding bonds at least the ones who are holding voluntarily. Of course, there are some institutions and some parties who are holding bonds because they have to for some regulatory right. reason, some capital exactly. reason, some yeah. you know, some other reason where they, they have to. But the people who are doing it by choice, they could at least start with a small Bitcoin position. So I think I think that's probably a very likely scenario. I'm curious, if you were to compare Bitcoin with other asset classes, so property as an example, or um, you know, maybe even just cash. How would you compare, from a fundamental point of view, how would you compare Bitcoin versus other asset classes there? Yeah, so, so yeah, there's certainly other you know limited supply hard assets. I would I would call them you know real estate, gold. Like you know, there are a bunch, even stocks to to a certain extent that um, you know that should be a bit of a debasement hedge, you know, alongside Bitcoin. But I think I think one of the things that's like fascinating about Bitcoin that is really still quite underappreciated is is it is the only financial asset you can actually own, like that you can truly own without any counterpart relying on any counterparty for you to uh, 
for you to have you know title to that asset. Like when you buy real estate, you're relying on whatever government you know runs the jurisdiction you bought that real estate in. Their court system is basically what guarantees your title to that asset. And you know, with gold, like okay, like you can you know bury some in your backyard or whatever. But like if you're trying to like cross a border or you know when when things get you know politically difficult, it's much harder to actually get real you know transactional utility out of your gold than it uh, than it would be for for Bitcoin. So I think that's. Um, you know, especially as as things get more heated politically, you know, we have increasing polarization in the U.S. Like, you know, I think reasonable people are are kind of worried about you know extremism and authoritarianism on both sides of the political aisle. Um, you know, in environments like that, like something that is completely unreliant on the political system for your ownership of it, and that there's there's real attraction there that uh, I think is is still quite underappreciated, but um, yeah, might be entering people's minds more and more. Of course. And so there are scenarios where, as an example, in Australia, there was a recent case shared by my friend Katan. Uh, he was talking about how various apartment owners were being mandated by the government that they weren't allowed to do Airbnb on their own property. And so in a similar way, it's like these property, well, physical property that you're holding, it can be severely restricted in how you use it or monetize that. And so that could be really impactful for you if you're a physical property holder and then the government rezones it or does something to your ability to actually use that property and so that's an example there where you know in bitcoin that just doesn't happen uh so uh of course bitcoin is not totally immune of course bitcoin is still a little bit at the whim of what's going on with central banks but i think as we as we were establishing earlier there's this fundamental reason that central banks are just going to have to expand their balance sheet, even if they're making these overtures right now about lowering their balance sheet or trying to lower it, right? Exactly. If we, yeah. <laughs> I'm also thinking back to Christine Lagarde's comments about, oh, it will come in due time. It will come uh, when she was questioned about the size of the ECB balance sheet. And uh, so I think these are all points that uh, are interesting for people to bear in mind. So I guess at this point, any listeners who are, I guess, Wanting advice from you, you're a long-time uh, Bitcoiner. Do you have any thoughts to close out for them on what to do, how to uh, go about uh, the bear cycle or the sideways cycle or whatever we're calling this? Sure. I, I mean, I, I guess like first thing is just realize this time is not different. Like it is, you know, that we this has happened, uh, you know, four times before. It always it feels like you know sentiment shifts, and I mean, obviously sentiment shifts, but it feels like you know, the world like fundamentally changes its attitude toward Bitcoin. And like, you know, there's some truth to that in the short term, but the Bitcoin ecosystem gets stronger, you know, through the bears every time. Um, I would recommend, you know, it's a good time to kind of get your house in order in terms of like, you know, are there aspects of the, the ecosystem you don't understand? You know, there are you know arguments for, you know, for or against the asset you don't understand. Uh, so, you know, understand things better fundamentally. Uh, and also, uh, learn, you know, learn the the technology and tools better. You know, t- you know, learn how to safely take control of your keys. You know, with this, you know, comments we just made about you know Bitcoin being this unique asset that you can fundamentally own. Uh, you know, in contrast to everything else, like you have to actually take uh, control of your keys for that to be true. So, you know, I would recommend uh, deeply understanding that so that you can have proper 
cold storage. Maybe you have you know some cold hot system. Keep a little bit on exchange, but uh, take control of, of of the vast majority of it yourself. But yeah, you know, do do your research to do that safely. Maybe you know you want to use one of the you know, third party services that help you do that with multisig, such that you still retain control, but but you know do have someone you can go to for help. So yeah, that, I mean that that's just it's been great to see the development of these tools, and uh, yeah, I just recommend that uh, that people uh, use use the bear market to to do their homework. Fantastic. Well, Dan, thank you. Um, that's been great. And listeners, go and find Dan. You can find him on Twitter at Robustus and the website casebitcoin.com. So, uh, Dan, thanks again for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 390. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels.